Hello and welcome to the fourth and final episode of the international edition of The Art of Drug Choice, Wet AMD and the Latest Data. It's my pleasure to have uh, my colleagues from around the world here, Dr. Peter Kurtz from University of Toronto in Canada. Thanks, Arshan. Very happy to be part of this. Dr. Justice Garvik from University of Bern in Switzerland. Great to discuss with you all the new issues and topics. And my good friend, Dr. Sino Hariprasad from University of Chicago. Thank you, Arshad. It's such a pleasure to be part of this esteemed panel. It's my pleasure to have all of you here, and I'm looking forward to a robust discussions about uh, real-world safety data and clinical trial safety data in wet AMD. Also, I'll share a case for the panel to review at the end. Our previous episodes covered switching VET-AMD patients to different drugs, phase three and post-marketing data, and pipeline candidates. If you wanna catch up on those, please go back and listen to those episodes. For now, let's get into our safety dis discussion and Dr. Peter Kurtz from uh, Canada will update us on what's happening with Brolocizumab. Thanks, Arshan. Um, in previous episode, we, uh, we touched on the Komodo Health and Iris Registry data discussing inflammation related to brolicizumab uh, in these post-marketing studies. And we talked about how uh, patients with the following were more likely to experience intraocular inflammation um, after being treated with brolicizumab. Uh, female gender had slightly higher rates of intraocular inflammation, history of retinal vasculitis, retinal vascular occlusion, um, or intraocular inflammation, all predicted intraocular inflammation after brolicizumab, and the presence of anti-drug antibodies were predictive of future IOI after brolicizumab therapy. The Merlin study was recently halted by Novartis. Merlin uh, was a two-year study that enrolled patients with wet macular degeneration who had persistent retinal fluid despite being treated with anti-VEGF uh, therapy. The study met its primary endpoint but there were higher than expected rates of intraocular inflammation, which led to the study being halted. Raptor and Raven, which were assessing the efficacy and safety of brolocizumab for the treatment of retinal vein occlusion was also halted as a consequence of what was found in Merlin. Peter, uh, thanks again for the great summary. Of course, you highlighted uh, the Merlin study and, and the recently released data showed that patients had higher inflammation almost uh, double than what we saw in Hawk and Harrier. But of course, these were previously treated patients who received monthly injections uh, in the first and second year. And, and obviously the study was halted because it appears that there's more inflammation when patients are treated monthly uh, with bolacizumab. Justice, uh, does, does uh, Mer Merlin change anything you're doing in your clinic uh, with patients with bolacizumab? I know we discussed anyways that even if we switch, we don't do the loading dose because it appears that monthly injections have a higher rate. What are your thoughts on that? Well, basically, it didn't change anything because uh, if we switch patients, we give them an injection and we see the patients back four weeks later. And if they have some residual fluid, we still give an injection after one month. But then we start extending the treatment interval to six weeks. And I have not had any patient who was not capable of being extended to six weeks or beyond uh, after the first uh, months. So uh, I don't think the signal that was found in Merlin is of relevance for, for our typical uh, switcher patient in clinical practice. Uh, I agree. I think, you know, I don't load anyways, as I said earlier, so it doesn't affect. But 
what it tells me that we won't have a monthly label, at least in the US. Uh, Sinu, any thoughts on um, uh, monitoring patients for inflammation um, and, 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 and how this new safety data has changed um, how you manage patients with BOV considering the, the female gender as well as history of IOI? Well, I'll tell you, I actually don't bring in patients just for a check for inflammation when I use prolicizumab. Rather, we have an extensive um, education discussion with the patient about the symptoms that where they should uh, notify us immediately. And so it's more about the discussion and it, it does take some time, but we don't bring them in sooner for um, an inflammation check. Uh, of course, we uh, pay attention to the data. We certainly won't use prolicizumab monthly to, to be honest, uh, based on Merlin, but, uh, but, um, but uh, it really hasn't um, uh, increased the number of visits uh, because of this um, uh, uh, rare adverse event that we're all concerned about. I think those are great points. I do the same. I don't bring them for safety checks. I just dilate patients every time they're there and look for inflammation before I decide to inject. So I think that's the only additional burden I have. So let's go to the next uh, uh, discussion here. Dr. Sinuhari Prasad will cover some of the safety data from uh, the Tanaya and Lucerne studies with Frisimab. Thank you, Arshad. Um, you know, the, the first map safety data was actually uh, quite good. Uh, in the phase three studies, Tanaya and Lucerne, no safety signals were identified and no unexpected safety signals occurred. Only one to 2% of patients in either arm of both trials showed a serious ocular adverse event. Uh, intraocular inflammation events were found in 2% of patients in the first map group and 1.2% of patients in the aflibercid comparator group and there were no cases of retinal vasculitis noted in either arm. Great, Sinu. So I think that is promising that we have not seen any new safety signals um, with Frisimab uh, in these large phase three trials. We didn't see any new signals in phase two stairway or avenue studies either. As we know, the two-year study data is still being collected and analyzed, and the long-term extension, the Avenal X study, will generate four-year data so we can see uh, the safety and efficacy of uh, frisimab long-term. Uh, Justice, does uh, frisimab uh, bother you at all in terms of safety appears that is comparable to current standard uh, of care treatments? I'm looking very much forward to having uh, a frisimab at hand to compare its efficacy with brolicizumab and uh, to learn about its uh, safety as we learn from brolicizumab after marketing of this drug. Peter, any comments about safety of uh, Frisimab from you? It appears to me that is pretty comparable. Yeah, certainly, um, you know, uh, Brolicizumab has raised the specter and the importance of safety. So knowing that this is um, safe will make it, uh, will will move it into the realm of first-line therapy. And um, I very much look forward to comparing it to the agents we currently have. You always have to balance the efficacy and safety and each patient's needs are different. So I think it's great to have options as we discussed earlier. So next we're gonna move on to um, safety of uh, gene therapy and Dr. Garwick will cover the safety of ADVMO22 as well as RGX314. So uh, the OPTIC, uh, which is a phase one trial assessing RGX314 uh, showed a very favorable safety profile and OPTIC adverse event uh, in 80% of cases, which was moderate in 20% of cases, 
uh, with mild inflammation, but no vasculitis, retinitis, choroiditis, vascular occlusions, or endophthalmitis. In contrast to this, the INFINITY trial, uh, which is a phase two DME trial, was uh, paused because uh, the adeno-associated virus induced into uh, one diabetic case uh, produced a severe pandiovitis with hypotony and severe vision loss. And therefore, uh, we do not know whether it's a single case or there's more than this single case signal behind it. Um, the RGX314 uh, has to be placed into the eye with a surgical procedure, which is a vitrectomy. And uh, linked to this, it has its inherent safety concerns. Uh, if given into the subretinal space, we are still waiting to having that in the uh, seeing its effect in the suprachoroidal space. High dosing of the uh, drug is not advisable because of uh, a significant decrease in vision in, in the high-dose cohort. There were uh, no reports of clinically determined immune responses, drug-related ocular inflammation or post-surgical inflammation beyond what was expected from, from the routine vitrectomy itself. So in so far, we can look forward to that. The uh, review of the PDS safety data at 72 weeks uh, of, in Arcway showed four cases of endophthalmitis, which is quite high, but it's not higher than what we saw in intravitreal injection uh, uh, treatments for DME. Some reports of the PDS implant uh, reported dislocating from the original position, but this was in the early phase of the trial when we had not learned how to implant uh, the thing most perfectly, and this uh, uh, is namely relevant for the length of the incision. If that is a little bit longer only, then the stability of, of the PDS is not given. Surgical guidelines were updated accordingly, so I do think uh, this safety uh, signal has been overcome. Uh, that's a great summary, um, Dr. Garweg. I think um, uh, for intravitreal gene therapy, manageable safety in optic trial with no irreversible vision loss. In the infinity trial, as you said, there's a patient with hypotony, penuveitis, and vision loss that we are still learning. I think uh, you know we need to see if gene therapy uh, acts differently in VET-AMD versus DME, or is it just that as we treat more patients, we are exposing patients to these events. Anytime you have irreversible or severe vision loss, there is a concern. Just like in the RGF314 trial, the, the vision loss was because of pigmentary changes going into the center, and that's why you know the blood location has been uh, moved. Obviously, we didn't see any. Um, you know, uh, drug-associated inflammation, and then poor delivery system. We extensively covered that in our prior episode, but anytime you're doing any procedures to the eye, you're having looking at safety and efficacy. Um, Sinu, any thoughts uh, to summarize Dr. Garwick's talk uh, here? No, I, I think you uh, summarized it very well, and um, it's um, uh, cautious enthusiasm. Um, uh, I think all of us share this excitement about uh, this new frontier of gene therapy and a disease like AMD or diabetic macular edema, but uh, we, we really need to understand these um, uh, safety uh, issues, uh, certainly not ready for prime time. And I, I think a lot of work needs to be done. And if I'm not mistaken, RGX may have, the, the patients may have received a subtenance catalog at the time of surgery. Uh, I, I re recall that, uh, vaguely recall that, and that might be hiding some of the inflammation that um, uh, we don't see uh, with RGX, what we do see with that Verum. Um, does anyone know if that's the case? That uh, did they receive steroid at the time of uh, vitrectomy surgery? 
Now, standard of care, as you know, so uh, subconjunctival, steroid, and antibiotics. There was no mandated um, subtenons, but we did use topical steroids per standard of care uh, for surgery. There are, uh, you know, other gene therapy trials that are surgical that require subtenons injections. So I think that's a good point is, uh, you know, we need to learn long-term safety and efficacy data. And I think the bar is really high because we have great agents. Any, um, any closing thoughts from you, Peter? Yeah, um, as I said uh, previously, I think, you know, this realm of gene therapy is, is tremendously exciting. We're just scratching the surface. And um, so I think that's going to need some significant fine tuning, but I think the day will come where um, we see um, gene therapy uh, treatments that are lasting, uh, durable and safe. With that excitement, we are taking a short break and we'll be right back where I'll present a case. Hello everyone, welcome back. Uh, I'm taking over for Arshad because he's gonna share a case with us. Um, Arshad, take it away. Thank you, uh, Peter. So my case is an 83 year old retired infectious disease uh, doctor who was diagnosed with neovascular AMD in my clinic in November of 2010. I treated the patient with bevacizumab, ranubizumab, as well as a flibercep. He initially was on ranubizumab, but then the disease was not controlled. And that's why he was switched to a flibercep and received 19 injections, but it was discontinued due to uh, developing severe IOI. So this patient was actually waiting for uh, approval of uh, brolicizumab and was one of my first patients that I treated uh, with brolicizumab. Here you can see uh, an OCT image before patient was switched to brolicizumab. You have significant disease activity with large amount of subretinal fluid. And this was about six weeks post ranubizumab. Um, of note, he travels a lot. So he was unable to come uh, every month but he would come in when he could. And this was uh, six weeks um, after the ranubizumab injection. This uh, is um, four weeks after brolicizumab. Uh, again, this was one of my early cases. We were not aware of the safety signals at that time. And you can see patient has significantly improved visual acuity as well as resolution of uh, fluid. At this visit, um, I did not treat him with brolicizumab. I actually don't uh, do loading doses when I treat my, or when I switch my patients to brolicizumab. And here you can see eight weeks after brolicizumab, the visual acuity is still good and patient continues to have no fluid and dry retina. He was uh, then extended. It was, this is 10 weeks um, uh, after brolicizumab. You can see uh, the retina is still doing well. And this is 12 weeks and you can see there is some subretinal fluid and disease activity. So we are able to uh, figure out his treatment interval, which was about eight to 10 weeks. And that's what he was maintained on. But this is his OCT after nine weeks post fourth injection of brolicizumab, visual acuity was still good um, and fluid was controlled. Here he was treated with fifth uh, brolicizumab. And then he showed up three days later with uh, severe intraocular inflammation. He actually had a hypopion and his visual acuity was count fingers. Obviously, in a patient with this finding, he did not have any pain. We were concerned about endophthalmitis, and we offered him a tap and inject uh, injection. And obviously, he's a retired infectious disease doctor. He said, this is very similar to what I had with a flibercept in the past. I don't want to have tap and inject. So he did not receive that. He was started on topical as well as uh, PO steroids. 
and he improved slightly, but not significantly over the next few days. And at that time, I was able to convince him to undergo a vitrectomy with culture. Uh, we performed the vitrectomy, uh, we cultured, the culture was negative. Um, I was happy to see that uh, there was no vasculitis uh, seen intra-op um, after um, the patient was uh, uh, treated with vitrectomy, um, his visual acuity returned to baseline and um, he had no vasculitis. So this case really highlights that um, patients with prior risk of IOI are actually at risk of IOI with prolocizumab. Now, again, this was a case that uh, happened before the IRIS and Komodo registry data that we are all aware of, which has shown that patients with IOI, patients with history of retinal vascular occlusion are at higher rate uh, of, of, of those with treatment uh, with brolocizumab. So I would love to see um, uh, what the faculty has to say. So I'm gonna hand it back to Dr. Peter Kurtz. Great case, Arshad, and um, reassuring to hear that uh, despite some intervention, the patient returned uh, to their baseline vision. Uh, Sino, do you have any thoughts about this case and um, have you had similar experience uh, with prolocizumab? Uh, fortunately, I have not had an intraocular um, inflammatory event uh, with brolicizumab. Uh, but you know what, what I see in this case is the importance of understanding clinical trial data. Uh, from uh, what, what I understand, Dr. Kanani, I didn't have the advantage of seeing the latest uh, data that was released about uh, ocular inflammation uh, when he had used brolicizumab in this patient who already had a history of intraocular inflammation. But now knowing what we know, I don't think anybody on this panel would have used brolicizumab in a patient uh, that had a history of intraocular inflammation. So it's just, uh, it, it stresses the importance of uh, being up to date uh, with the, the uh, trial data, retrospective studies, and uh, re really the pulse of what our colleagues are doing in the community. But re really wonderful case and stresses the importance that we should not use brolicizumab in a patient that has any history of intraocular inflammation. Eustace, do you have any uh, thoughts about this particular case? Well, we have similar experience, but not with going to vitrectomy. We treated our patients aggressively with uh, systemic corticosteroids in the first days intravenously, and we had also very, very good outcomes, which means the drug was effective despite uh, uh, the severe inflammation we observed. Uh, Critical point is probably early diagnosis and aggressive treatment um, to prevent further vascular occlusion uh, and uh, to control intraocular inflammation. Arshad, I have a couple um, questions about this uh, particular case for you. You know, we when someone has intraocular inflammation and gets brolocizumab, we blame it. Uh, we tend to blame it on the brolocizumab, and that may very well have been the case. But of course, these are intraocular and intravitreal injections, they can certainly get endophthalmitis. And certainly, um, you know, when, when, I, when I first looked over this case, I, um, I would have gone with endophthalmitis first and either tap, tap and injected or, um, or done a vitrectomy. You know, we know that in endophthalmitis, they, they often don't grow things, even though, even though we know it's infectious. Is there, um, you alluded to the fact that uh, you were leaning towards intraocular inflammation versus endophthalmitis with the help of a colleague, but I, I still think that this may have been infectious rather than uh, pure inflammation, just by the way it presented and, um, and, how, and how you described it. No, I agree completely with you, Peter. We actually offer tap and inject right away 
but the patient is an infectious disease doctor himself. And he said, this is very similar to what I had with the Flibercep in the past. So he actually refused uh, a tap and inject at that time. Uh, the findings that we saw, there was no fibrin in the anterior chamber, which, which has been associated with more infectious versus non-infectious sterile endophthalmitis with the Flibercep. And I saw him when he had that uh, inflammation episode with the Flibercep and his eye looked exactly the same. But what concerned me was that I did treat him aggressively with steroid topically and systemically with high dose PO steroids as just as mentioned. But my, my clinical judgment was that in other cases that I've seen a patient recovered quicker than, than him. So I was still concerned about uh, endophthalmitis actually. So that's when I said, you know, we're gonna find out what it was. Uh, even if culture is positive or negative, you're gonna do a vitrectomy, you're gonna get recover vision. My main concern was not getting vasculitis uh, because we know that if you don't control inflammation with brolicizumab, acutely you will end up with irreversible vision loss. And I think that's what happened in the trial. So I think here now we have information that if your patient is on brolicizumab, you have to intervene. Now I actually use intravitreal dexamethasone on top of systemic and topical steroid in somebody that has severe inflammation. I have not had a single patient with irreversible vision loss because of that management strategy. So I completely agree with you. Infection was top of the list, but when patient doesn't wanna do uh, an intervention, I didn't have a choice, but he did agree on vitrectomy. And you know, the bottom line is he didn't end up with irreversible vision loss, which is the uh, which is something we want to avoid. He did, we did serial fluorescein angiograms, as you saw in the talk, there was no vasculitis. So I think the patient ended up with a good outcome. And remember this case was actually before we learned about the iris and Komodo. So this is one of my early patients who was actually waiting for brolicizumab to be approved. So I think this was a learning case for me. And, and this was before the data you presented very nicely, Peter. But now as Sinu mentioned, I don't, use bolicizumab in patients with history of IOI with any other agent. Thanks, Arshad. There's a lot of lessons to be learned from that case. So what's what's next for this patient? He's had an inflammatory reaction from a flibercept and brolicizumab. He still has active AMD. What um, what do we do? What do you do now? So he actually is on ranubizumab again, but his need has gone down since the vitrectomy. Uh, and, and now he's on every eight to 10 weeks ranubizumab with good control. Uh, so I don't know what happened in terms of disease modification or control, but he's actually very happy and controlled ranubizumab and his BCVA continues to stay, stay uh, you know, same as before. So he's actually very happy with the outcome. Obviously, we don't want to go through this outcome in other patients, but he's doing well. Thank you for everyone uh, for joining us uh, for this the final episode in the art of drug choice. Please uh, go back and listen to some other some of our other episodes in the podcast and check out the images that are available from these cases on itube.net. Thanks for listening and thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.